This 53rd Psalm is what's called a community lament. You know, sometimes biblical words aren't part of our everyday usage, and so it's uh, worth pointing out a lament is just a passionate expression of grief, of sorrow. Uh, in, in this case, it's a, it's a time, it's written for the purpose of, um, of God's people expressing collectively this, this mourning because men and women do not generally seek the face of the Lord. They, they deny it as such. Uh, the content of this, this psalm is significant enough in, in this in the Psalter, that it's actually included twice. Almost word for word, Psalm 14 and 53 are, are very, very close. We won't go into the differences and what they mean, just so that we can really focus in on Psalm 53 today and, and let the weight of these six verses really uh, land on us properly. So, uh, again, though, we, we do have this interesting title at the beginning of the psalm. Sometimes the author, modern authors, will put a title. Sometimes the ancient authors have put a title. In this case, it's an ancient author here that says, uh, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. Well, Mahalath is a, a stringed instrument that's real similar to the harp, uh, I guess a harp of some, skill, some sort. Uh, and a mascal just means, uh, it's a word meaning something like instruction. So this is the instruction of David put to a harp to be sung by the congregation as a lament, a sadness. Uh, let's read this patch of Psalm 53 and then we'll just jump right into it. <clears throat> The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come to this short psalm about unbelief, would you help us to see what it is we say in our own hearts? Not for condemnation, but for the sake of conforming the speech of our hearts to, to love you. Yes, Lord, speak to us through this, your inherent holy word. Teach, rebuke, train, and correct us that we would be better equipped, equipped to serve you as men and women of, of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Hebrew word, Nabal, is the word that we have here translated as fool in verse 1. Uh, the Nabal, the fool, says in his heart that there is no God. Uh, that's what this is right here. And then in, in, in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, there's a story about a man whose actual name is Nabal. Um, Nabal was a wealthy man. He had shepherds, he had livestock, and... Uh, these shepherds and, and livestock were out and about while, while David, King David and his men actually protected them. Later on, David sends word to Nabal and he asks him, you know, will you receive me and my men? Will you receive us? There's a, a feast coming up and we, and we want to eat and share this meal with them. But Nabal sends response back to this request of David by declining and saying, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
I mean, clearly he knows more about David than he lets on by calling him the son of Jesse. But, but what he's really saying there, and in other words, is as far as Nabal's concerned, there is no David. I couldn't care less. In a similar way, that's what the fool in our passage today says in his heart when he says, there is no God. Could care less. I suppose it's, it's clear right from the start that on some level this psalm is about atheism. This, the fool here believes there is no God and thus he, he lives this life according to that conviction that there is no God. There are actually three words for fool in Hebrew, but the one that's being used here is, is very specific. It, it doesn't mean stupid or ignorant. Most of you probably know some of the atheists you know in your life or those who deny the existence of God are actually very intelligent people. And, and even here, it's not talking about an ignorant person, but rather someone who is destructively self-centered, morally deficient, depraved, with a, a hatred of any authority, and thus the fool refuses to acknowledge that God exists because that would be an authority. Uh, we'd use the word atheist here. I, I kind of find it odd, maybe you do too, do you find it odd that the scriptures refer to this person who denies the existence of God as a fool? Uh, not, not just someone who, who, who maybe is mistaken, not just someone who you know, is, is misunderstood or doesn't have eyes to, to really understand God properly, properly. but this, this harsh word, to actually use the word fool. You know, when you, when you see something like that, it really ought to get us asking, you know, why, why this? Why this harshness? Why is there not more compassion in God's words here? Why is he doing this? And I'll tell you, it's because here's the deal. This person's not misunderstood. This person is perfectly aware that there is a God, and yet he or she has willfully chosen to deny that God exists. Now, let me, let me try to explain that to you. This this. Romans chapter 1, rather, is a bit of a commentary, an explanation of this verse, uh, of this psalm. And in Romans 1.18, uh, the, the atheist there is, is said to have, uh, and notice, this is, this is active, not passive, but it says this of them. They suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they suppress the truth. What, what he means is that when we look at the world, it doesn't take much, right? You, when you look at the world and when we, when we look at the stars and we look at the oceans and we see the way that, that weed is growing up in a field and, and beautiful, when we look at the miracle of human reproduction and the magical way that an eyeball in this vivid color actually explains to our brain what is right before us, when we taste the radiant flavors of ripe mangoes or, or, or a perfectly grilled filet mignon, when we look at everything that makes the world around us, makes it up, it's perfectly clear that God exists. All of creation is what, what's called general revelation. It says something about God, namely that he's there, right? That he is. As Romans 1, 19 and 20, just the verse after the one I read to you before, says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Any truly honest person can see the existence of God as the most reasonable explanation of our own existence and the explanation of the universe that we dwell in, the world we inhabit. 
Now, now don't misunderstand this. We come to this text as Christians with a full understanding of, of the gospel. Don't mistake this. Uh, creation does not give enough information to believe the gospel. But it gives enough information to us, to man, that denying God exists uh, is a foolish conclusion to come to. I've often thought for someone to observe the world that we live in and, and to actually come to the conclusion that God does not exist actually takes a great more faith to believe than the gospel, than to believe that God actually exists. It's the most reasonable thing. Uh, to deny God, then, is to deny any authority over us. That's, that's what Psalm 10.4 says. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Uh, perhaps the, the opposite statement in Scripture might be something like Proverbs 1.7. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Why? Because the fear of God, to fear God, you must first believe that God actually exists. And actually has some expectations of his creation. Let me try to explain this a little bit with a, a turtle story, right? This is the summer of turtle stories. Um, our, our Presbytery summer camp uh, used to canoe down the Elk River. It's in the Ozark section of Missouri, assuming that's a real thing. I think that's what it's called. Um, the, the place we stayed was run by this guy named Ray. Ray was, was of mythic proportions, amazing. Um, nobody messed with Ray, and, and he just knew everything. He seemed to be almost uh, omnipresent, you know, and, and uh, he'd keep us safe. He would enforce the rules. He, he was somehow always aware of everything we were doing. And I can remember one year where a small group of guys traveled slowly with me down the river in our canoes, and we managed to catch just a canoe full of turtles, tons of them. Um, it was a weird river. You could put your goggles on, go under, and come up with, with two turtles in one breath. Uh, but anyway, about a mile from our destination, someone asked the question, uh, all these things begin with that sort of thing, can you skip a turtle like a rock? <laughs> and at the time, that seemed like a really good question. Um, I thought we should fill out a grant and see if we can get paid to do this. We didn't. Uh, we, we looked around, though. We, we wanted to see, uh, is there anyone else around here, right? The, the very fact that we looked around to see who's going to watch us test this theory out tells us that somewhere deep down, we knew we probably shouldn't be skipping turtles across the lake or the river. Um, you know, we, we said in our hearts at that moment, there, there is no ray. He can't possibly see us. We, we then did the research properly. Uh, indeed, you can skip a turtle just like a rock. It goes pretty well and eventually stops and then swims off. I imagine very, very uh, dizzy at that point. I wouldn't recommend doing that. I wouldn't do it anymore. Uh, I'll say that much. But once we had gotten back to camp and we, and we canoed in there, I can remember walking into the main room uh, and Ray is back behind some counter working on something and he just kind of looks up and he says, please tell me you were not really skipping turtles across the river. There was no like shoreline where we did this. I have no idea how he knows to this entire day uh, how he managed to get this information, but he did. Uh, and I was the first one in, so I know there were no students who went ahead of me to, to share this information. But you see, the, the foolishness of saying in our hearts uh, in that day that there is no ray, and the foolishness of saying in our hearts that there is no God is that we're wrong. We're absolutely wrong. And so what God refers here to the atheist here as a fool, that, that doesn't negate, though, I want you to understand this before we move on, that doesn't negate the way that we're going to interact with, with an atheist, right? An agnostic, someone who just doesn't believe in God. For, for our obedience to God, it, it requires us 
um, to seek to show the agnostic, to, to patiently seek to show the atheist that God does indeed exist. Not to call him a fool. God can do that, but, but not us. Um, Francis Schaeffer once said, we must never forget that the first part of the gospel is not accept Christ as Savior, but God is there. God is there. Well, only then are we ready to hear God's solution for man's moral dilemma and the substitutionary work of Christ. So we begin there. So then our, our passage continues, though, about those who deny the existence of God. And we have this, this saying from uh, the second half of verse 1 through verse 3. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is this wide-angle observation of humanity, right? I know that it's common. It's popular to say, I believe, you know, most people are good. There's a country song right now that drives me nuts because it says it over and over again, even though the tune's amazing. Um, but, but the basic idea here is this wide-angle assessment of the world and says, no, we're not mostly good. We're, we're mostly bad. That's, that's our natural position. That, you know, corrupt, sinful. And, and so the, the bit of our, our passage here is, is um, this bit is actually the source text of Romans 3, 10 through 12, when, when Paul is trying to make this point that both the Jews and the Gentiles are both sinners. You both need a Savior. You're both desperately in need of someone to save you because you're sinners. And then the corruption that we see here of denying God, uh, you know, expands here. And the corruption of denying God exists uh, even further, in verse 4, he writes, Have those who work, no evil, uh, who work evil no knowledge, who eat at my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? You, you see this connection here that's happening here. Uh, they don't seek after God, and so they are treating people cruelly. That's, that's the response to that. The, the root of oppression, the root of this cruelty is in not seeking the face of God. Wherever we see people behaving cruelly towards others, we can be certain that these are, these are people who are not seeking after God. Um, here, in our passage, the evil people are, are oppressing God's people. That's what's happening. And it's, and it's said to be so incredibly common that it's just like eating bread, which was the most common thing they ate in their, in their diet. James Montgomery Boyce said of humanity, we are relentless in our efforts to use others for our advantage. You have likely experienced someone who has used you, the connection to you, some aspect of you, uh, in order to accomplish their purpose at your expense. We, we've seen this in our culture on a, long, uh, on a large scale level in our nation as well. Uh, I'll give abortion as a clear example. By denying that God exists in our collective view as a nation, uh, it meant that the courts, somebody had to step in. And so the courts step in uh, the role of God, right? Deciding what is wrong, what is moral, what is not moral. Uh, because the judges were not seeking God, the result is uh, oppression of the unborn citizens of our nation. Uh, the result is murder of unborn boys and girls. Uh, while they should be resting in one of the safest places ever, their mother's womb. The same is, is true for racism, Right? Um, those in history who we would likely call our brothers and sisters in Christ, we read their stuff, we love a great deal of what they said, but yet, uh, we, you know, they found themselves enacting laws, they found themselves treating fellow humans of a different color terribly, with hate-filled words, with violence, with oppression of all sorts, and, uh, and they arrived there not through some godly 
uh, understanding of anything. They arrived there through pride, through fear, through selfishness. Uh, but at the heart of it, they were not seeking to love God. They were not seeking to love their neighbor as God has called them to. In, in other words, we as a nation, if, if we as a nation collectively sought the Lord, it would lead to the end of abortion and to the end of racism. Or at least racism would be relegated to the history books somewhere along polio as something we look back on. And we would be coming alongside each other, right? That's not to say we'd live in a perfect, sinless utopia, but we'd be coming alongside each other in compassion and care to to help battle the deeply seated sins in our lives. See, when men and and women seek the Lord earnestly, we we stop treating other people cruelly. And then in verse 5, we we read this. "There, There they are. In great terror where there is no terror. In other words, there, there is no immediate threat to them. There's nothing to really be afraid of in this moment. And yet, in an unbeliever's life, I'll just bring this up into today and the way we understand it. There, there are moments where, where in their hearts there's this sense that, you know, maybe God does exist. There's this, this sense that, 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 maybe, that maybe there is moral right and moral wrong outside of my opinions or, or some social contract that we, we've agreed upon as a society. And in those moments, there is great terrifying thoughts. Fear because they know that they're guilty of sin. Even if they profess with their mouth and say there is no God, there's this sense of just knowing. What if there is? Before we look at the last verse, I want to change our perspective for a moment. I, I'm afraid it's too easy for us as Christians to come to a passage like this and just think, wow, glad I'm not an atheist. Well, where are we eating lunch today? Uh, you know, just carry on. Um, as though God's word here had nothing to say to us. But, but did you notice in this passage where the fool says there is no God? It's not just that he says outwardly, Right? He says it in his heart. There's something deeply seated about the atheism here. You see, there's a different kind of atheism that's more subtle. That, that we, we may be living. In fact, we are in some area of our life, we probably are living in this, this sense of atheism. It's subtle because it doesn't require that we actually declare with our mouth, there is no God. You don't have to do that. You can, you can absolutely proclaim there is a God. That Christ is your Savior even. But, but it comes from simply living as though God is not relevant in our discussions. That God has no place in, in our decisions. That, that God has no binding, no, no influence on our actions. It, it's when we refuse to, to seek the Lord or, or, or when we overwhelmingly disobey God knowingly, right? Knowingly disobeying God. Uh, it's what's often referred to as functional atheism. When temptation to sin presents itself to us, and, and even as redeemed people, we, we, we stop and we really consider it. Yeah, I think I might do this anyway. It, we're saying right there in our heart, there is no God. You're right? There, there's no God that has any binding on what's going on here. In that moment, we're, we're as Romans 1.18 showed us, we are suppressing the truth. I want to give a few examples of this. Where, where we... Uh, where we live as functional atheists in, in our lives, some, of the, some common ones. And, and my hope is this, that you recognize this uh, in our life so that we might combat this with, with the truths uh, of God and His revelation. First, you, you might 
Um, if you make important decisions about your life, about your career, uh, without praying about them. It might be that you just forgot once, right? I'm not trying to get nitpicky here, but it, if, if this is a natural way you go through your life, it, it may be because you are living as a functional atheist. We should be asking God for clarity, for, for wisdom, for understanding. You see, um, you think about Jesus. Jesus, less than anyone else in the history of the world, really needed to pray, right? He understood things in ways we didn't understand. It. He had information we didn't understand. He had power we don't have. And yet he prayed to his Father consistently. You think about it. Even before he went to the cross, he's praying to the Father. He takes time to do so. Christian, you know, say in your heart by the way that you pray when you are making decisions in life that God does indeed exist. Whatever I'm about to do, whatever change we're about to make, whatever it is, it, God is above us. God has a right here. We're looking for his wisdom. Secondly, when we willingly have thought about it and then choose to disobey God. In, in other words, when we find ourselves having no desire for godliness in our life. When, when I want to do whatever I want to do and I want it to be just free of guilt. So let's just pretend like I have no idea what's in here. Just push it aside. Like, like when I don't want to forgive somebody. I'm sure if God understood the situation, he would understand why I shouldn't forgive this person, right? Or, or when I want to justify a lie. It's okay to be lying in this moment because of this or that. Are there areas in your life that you act as if there is no God and he has said nothing to how you should live in this area? Areas in your life where you're permitting ungodliness to flourish. Say this, Jerry, Jerry Bridges defines ungodliness this way. He says it's living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. Right? It's not all of those are not active things there. Just living as though God does not exist is ungodliness. Every moment of the day, we, we must choose to live according to the truth that God does indeed exist, or to live by foolishly suppressing the truth. That also means that when we do sin, we must repent. We don't sin in a vacuum. We sin under the authority of God. We must repent, throwing ourselves on the absolute sure mercy of the Lord. Third, we act as functional atheists when we make plans as though God was, was not in control. James chapter 4, verses 13 and 15 is talking about a businessman. Sometimes we look at this and we don't understand what it is. But it's a businessman uh, or woman whose job requires traveling. There's no correction on that part of it. The person has to go and make deals and they're seeking to make profits in what they're doing. There's no correction on that. Those are all good things. But, but James reminds the Christians about this, about their life, when he says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go and do such and such, <clears throat> uh, go into such and such a town and spread it, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's saying this, basically. Humble Christians, Christians that understand that God exists in the world, uh, make plans in pencil. They make plans, but they make plans in pencil. 
This is closely tied to another way we might be living as functional atheists. When we, when we lack trust in the sovereignty of God, believing instead that, you know, it's really all up to me and what I do. Uh, there's a, a Baptist pastor named Tony Campola. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's been around for a long time. Uh, he advocates, advocates for a very liberal view of Scripture. Uh, he denies the most basic uh, historic Christian doctrines, including the sovereignty of God. I, in college, actually picked up a book of his and read it called 20 Hot Potatoes That Christians Are Afraid to Touch. Uh, and it was so heretical that um, when a wheel on my bed frame broke, I finally found a purpose for this book to reprop my, my, my bed up so that it would, would be level again. That was the only purpose I ever found for it. Uh, so anyway, he's been in the news again lately because his son Bart, uh, Bart today is this uh, a humanist chaplain. You might not have known that existed, but a, a humanist chaplain at the University of Cincinnati. He's also an outspoken atheist. Uh, last year he shared that he believes more and more young progressive Christians will follow him in the full-blown atheism. In his view, the process of abandoning Christian doctrines is almost addictive, meaning you abandon one and you just continue to abandon more. Once you start, you don't know where to stop. It might begin with dialing down your view of God's sovereignty, but it could easily end with unbelief. And I know, you hear an argument like this and you say, that's just a slippery slope argument. But listen, the, the, uh, it's an argument that's being made by the guy whose life ambition is to see you follow him down that slope to a view that life is nothing but a random occurrence. That's it. Uh, Bart, with his, his heart and his minds and his words, uh, began this heartbreaking journey to unbelief, beginning by denying the sovereignty of God, a simple historic doctrine of the church, Christian church. We, 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 we might not do that with our words, but when we feel compelled to do everything, when we feel compelled to carry the weight of the entire world on our shoulders as if it depended upon us, as if everything in your family, everything in the organization, the company, whatever it is you're doing, depends upon you absolutely. When we're doing that, we are functionally denying the sovereignty of God. Trust the Lord. Stop carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. God does not need you to carry any of it because he's got it all. Fifth, we can be functional atheists when we live as though God's wrath is not a real thing, as though hell were not a real thing. I, I will say I struggle with this, not because I don't believe it when you really get down to it, but I tend to forget that my unbelieving family members and friends and neighbors will die and that the wrath of God will be poured out upon them unless they are united to Jesus Christ where the wrath has already been poured out. It is so easy to adopt this general worldview idea that, that everyone will just be lovingly accepted into the kingdom of God, and yet we know as Christians, we know from Scripture that that's not true. Fight this by reminding yourself that the people you know have souls, souls that will last forever, and their souls are either resting in the gospel or their souls are in grave danger. So pray for them. Uh, sixth, and this is related to the last one, we act as functional atheists when we believe people can't change, or rather that God can't change people. I mean, you look at your life and tell me, has God not changed you over the course of your life? The truth is God can change the hardest heart. He can give faith to the most confident of atheists. He can make terrible husbands into wonderful husbands. He can change people. 
God can change anyone. And so don't live as a functional atheist by believing that's just the way they are. They're never going to change. Lastly, the way we handle disappointment says a lot about our faith. When you don't get the job, when the relationship doesn't work out like you thought it would, when the, when the car is broken and it's going to be expensive to fix it, when uh, pregnancy is elusive and frustrating, when you are disappointed, are you angry at God? Or do you, do you continue to, to think about all that God has done for you? Do, do you take that anger to the Lord? I mean, do you, are you able to still say to the Lord, you know, to the Lord of the universe, you love me. I know you love me. And so, well, yes, I, I am disappointed, Lord. I am just grateful that you, that you love me. And I know that in your plan, there's something going on here I can't understand. I mean, can you say something like that still in your disappointment? So this is not an exhaustive list. You can imagine, you know, we'd be old school here till like 2 in the afternoon with a lunch break if we were going to try to make an exhaustive list. Um, but, but I do want you to take this idea. I want you to look at your own life and think about where in my life Am I being a functional atheist? Where is the way that I'm thinking about something, the way I'm doing something, the way I'm planning something, the same as my uh, neighbor who, who says there is no God in the world would also be, be acting? Think about that, you know. Am I being a functional atheist in any way? And, and um, just think about that. We want to see correction in that regard. So then uh, verse 6 of Psalm 53, the last one says this. It says, salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Zion is one of those words we don't uh, always understand. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the, the presence and the location of where God actually is. Um, the presence of God. So, so Zion is also the, the same city where Jesus dies on the cross. It's the same city where just outside of it Jesus rose from the dead. And, and so then we begin today, uh, sorry, bring this to an end. Uh, as we began today with the story of Nabal in 1, or 1 Samuel chapter 25. You remember, instead of honoring David, Nabal rejected him, saying, who is David? Who cares? He, he pretended that David didn't exist. And when David hears this, the rest of the story goes that he sets out to destroy Nabal. He's going to kill Nabal and all of his men because of this. And yet it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because um, God had gifted Nabal with a wise wife, uh, Abigail. And Abigail gathers enough stuff to bring this feast to David, and she meets David and his men on the way there uh, while they're on their way to, to destroy Nabal. And David accepts the offering. David thanks her for stopping him from doing something he shouldn't have. He, he commends her greatly in this moment. And then ten days later, the Lord causes her fool of her husband to die. He drops dead, and David takes her as a wife. Nabal, in his folly, said in his heart, there is no David, and his life comes to a sad end. But the wise Abigail asked the king to show her mercy, and she, sin and she ends up becoming his beloved bride. There's, there's a parallel to the gospel here. Not one for one, so don't try to do that. But, but there's a general parallel here that the fool says in his or her heart, there is no God will come to a heartbreaking end as he or she is held responsible for their sin. But, but for the wise, for the man or the woman who says in their heart, there is a God, and ask the Lord Jesus to show them mercy, to, to be their Savior for them, they are not only spared, but become the beloved bride of Christ. Which, as Ephesians 5 tells us, is the church. It's the people of God. 
your faith's in Christ, then you are the beloved bride of Christ. One of the ways we, we keep God always in our heart is, is continuously to rejoice at the salvation that he has accomplished for us in the gospel. That's part of what we do week in and week out as we gather here. We bring our sorrows, we bring our worries, we come to worship the Lord, we come to remember that indeed we have a great and mighty Savior. So if you find yourself saying in your heart that there is no God, if you, if you find that you're either a full-blown atheist, atheist or a functional atheist, there is hope for you today because you can be changed. We can stop being fools and become wise in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, the, the first verse can be flipped around upside down so, so that we can say with it, right? So we can read it this way. The, the wise says in his or her heart, there is a God. And as we look to the New Testament, not only a God, but a great and mighty and merciful and wonderful Savior who loves us in, in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you sovereignly work in our hearts to know that you exist, not just on Sunday mornings, to know that you exist all throughout the week, to believe that not just intellectually, but to the core of our hearts, so that our life will reflect the wisdom that only can be had when we say in our hearts, there is a God, and he has been merciful to me through Christ my Savior. Lord, do not let us continue to be more to become functional atheists in our prayers and our ethics and our values and how we spend our money or raise our family and spend our free time. Lord God, would you be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.